Welcome to Moneyball Medicine. I'm Harry Glorieke and the host of the show. This show is where we meet executives, entrepreneurs, physicians, and scientists using the power of data to reinvent healthcare. From machine learning to genomics to personalized medicine, we look at the biggest trends in patient care and healthcare management. And we talk to the people behind the trends to find out where data is making the biggest difference. What if you can combine data and AI with robotics to discover and create advanced chemicals and materials at a faster rate and at the push of a button with almost no human intervention? My next guest is one of the leading researchers pushing this to become a reality. Alan Asporoguzic research lies at the interface of computer science with chemistry and physics. He works in the integration of robotics, machine learning, and high-throop chemistry for the development of materials acceleration platforms. These self-driving laboratories promise to accelerate the rate of scientific discovery with applications to clean energy and optoelectronic materials. Alan has de uh, developed quantum computer algorithms for quantum machine learning and has pioneered quantum algorithms for the simulation of matter. He is jointly appointed as the Professor of Chemistry and Computer Science at the University of Toronto. Alan is a faculty member of the Vector Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Previously, Alan was a full professor at Harvard University where he started his career in 2006. Alan is currently the Canada 150 Research Chair of Quantum Chemistry. Amongst other awards, Alan is a recipient of the Google Focused Award in Quantum Computing, the MIT Technology Review 35 Under 35, and the Sloan and Camille and Henry Dreyfus Fellowships. Alan is a fellow of the American Association of Advancement of Science and the American Physical Society. He is also co-founder of Zapata Computing and Kibotics, two early-stage ventures in quantum computing and self-driving laboratories, respectively. Alan, thank you for joining me on Moneyball Medicine. Thank you, Harry. It's a pleasure. So most of the shows I've hosted so far have focused mainly in healthcare. Um, this one may actually weave in and out of that zone, but, but I believe everything we discussed to be relevant to the industry. So Let's start off with 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 an easy question. Um, reading your background, it, it just it, it's it's uh, it's amazing. And I was just thinking, how did you get into chemistry, and then uh, the leap into AI and ML, which seems more like the computer sciences than uh, you know beakers and and test tubes in in a chemistry lab. <laughs> well, it, this is a story that unfortunately has to go all the way back to high school. Um, at the time, I was actually uh, well into computers, and, and we did a lot of programming and hacking and uh, et cetera at the time um, with my brother. And um, I happened to go to the International Chemistry Olympiad um, to compete for Mexico. Um, so I traveled to Norway, and I did well there. So I thought that I could be a good chemist. So. At the, at the spur of a moment uh, in Mexico, when I chose my major, I chose chemistry. Uh, but I always have kept a computer, computer science type uh, bent to it. Interesting. Interesting. Well, it's, it's probably a challenge to keep up on, on both when you think about it, especially with the 
with the acceleration on the uh, IT side of the equation, it seems like that's been moving faster than most people could possibly keep up. Yeah, so I mean, if you ask me now that I'm older and wiser, um, why did I pick the topics I picked and where, I, where I'm heading? Uh, I always have thought about um, trying to disrupt the field of chemistry. I think the field of chemistry is very traditional. And uh, the fields that are actually moving fastest are those related to the fourth industrial revolution, according to the World Economic Forum, uh, which happen to be uh, the areas that I've been working on. So now that in retrospect, it's very easy to see why I was attracted to quantum computing first. And then, you know, about six years ago, or even almost seven years ago, heavily attracted to artificial intelligence when it started to pick up, right? And now robotics. So um, I'm trying to solve problems in chemistry, and I find these tools useful to um, achieve my goals. So we use the, 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 the label of chemistry, and that, that's an extremely broad term. Um, so where do you think... We're seeing the 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 most application or the the fastest advancement uh, of of machine learning and everything. Where is it going to have the biggest impact? Is it material science, medicinal science, other sort of chemistry? I, I think it will impact the field as a whole. Um, you know, this macro to micro questions that could be addressed with machine learning. Um, one of the best protein structure predictions uh, was just. Uh, carried out using machine learning. Uh, the group of DeepMind was able to do that. That's an example of something that touches more in medicine and, and biology. Uh, my um, research group and I think about the problem of molecular design. Uh, sometimes we call it also inverse design. You know, it's quite easy to nowadays to say, if I have a molecule, what is the property that, I, that that molecule has? Is the molecule soluble or not? Or is the molecule binding to a pocket or not? Or is it a good material or not? That's kind of easier than the opposite question. Of all the possible molecules in the chemical universe, which is a molecule that could be the best for this particular application? And that problem called inverse design uh, lends itself to, um, to uh, machine learning. And it's one of the samples where I think uh, the technologies that other groups and my group as well are developing are actually uh, potentially very uh, game-changing, both in applications such as pharma, all the way to materials. So you helped start a company called Kibotics, which is basically working on the material science side of mm -hmm. combining, as I said in my first you know, quote, of combining AI robotics with advanced chemistry and basically churning out materials at a much faster rate than any human could do. How do you see that progressing? Um, how, how do you, how do you, where do you see that going in the short term and medium term and even the long term from the capabilities of the system as it continuously learns? Yes. So, um, as I said, you know, inverse design is an interesting pro project uh, problem, but of course it requires data. Uh, uh, if you want uh, a computer uh, to try to help you accelerate discovery, the computer needs data. So let's just backtrack a little bit. So what are we trying to do both in my laboratory and in Kibotics? Um, Kibotics is kind of like a commercial entity that is trying to do internal discovery, work with partners, etc. cetera. Uh, you can think about them as the CIA. And my group is kind of like the embassy. We're doing the same kind of thing 
in an open fashion training students, uh, talking to people like you, etc. Right. So, but we share the same goal, right? And the goal is the following. Okay, if you think about a laboratory, uh, and you think of the laboratory of the of, of you know traditional. Uh, you will see that there's many, many things that are done by hand. There's many, many things that could be sped up just by what is called automation, right? So automation is just robotization, like a factory, right? So automation is, is an interesting concept, and many people have tried it. And actually, combinatorial chemistry is an example of a place where automation enabled many things in material science and chemistry and pharma, but also showed its limitations because um, uh, it's like a machine gun, and, you know, it shoots a lot of bullets, but you have to know where to, sh to aim it at, right? Um, the transformation into automation, uh, sorry, autonomy, is what we want, right? We want the same concept of a car that is driving itself in the street, um, that is making decisions, looking at all the information. Uh, we want to explore chemical space with that um, in mind, right? So Kebotics and, and my research group are both developing artificial intelligence tools to make decisions based on all the data you have about what's the next best experiment to make. And then they use automation to actually carry out the experiment quicker, right? Which means making a molecule and testing it. So um, this idea of a platform, as I call it, of synthesis, characterization, and testing all together um, is carried out um, at Kebolics in Material Science, but there's also other companies um, like Cymergen, um, or our Ginkgo Bioworks that are applying it more into the, um, uh, how do you call it, um, biosynthesis space. Yeah, I, I, and I look at this in, in, a, in, a, in a way of, it depends on the number of inputs. In other words, if the number of reactions on the front end is small, then you, you, know, you have a limited number of outputs on the back end. If the number of inputs on the front end is unlimited, then it becomes a bigger problem over time. For the applications that we care about, which are uh, functional organic molecules, such as the molecules in your, in your cell phone, we can define a space uh, of a few hundred fragments, molecular fragments, and a few reactions that can make them combine with each other. The reactions that we select, unlike many other uh, places where automation have been used, are, have been actually designed to be very, very robust and very, very simple, right? So it's kind of more like Lego. So what we're trying to do is put together the molecules in Lego pieces um, with a finite set of reactions, a finite set of fragments, such that the chemical space that we explore is actually, uh, you know, um, a bounded set that, that we can deal with in the computer and that we can deal with in terms of complexity and we more or less know where we're exploring. Um, so your question is true, I mean, in the sense that if you actually think about exploration in chemical space in an unbounded fashion with all possible sets of molecules, uh, this will be running out of control very quickly. So the, one of the most important aspects of, of all of this inverse design, at least in, at this stage, is, is to bound it to a feasible set of reagents, molecules, and molecular properties that you need to screen. And I think that's the art of being successful at inverse design and not just getting lost in an infinite forest of possibilities. So when you look at this space and, and the capabilities being brought to it by... AI and machine learning or any of the other, uh, <laughs> you know, names that you can put on it these days, where do you see the biggest jump or leap? Is it, is it speed? Is it identifying a new compound? Is it, what do you believe is going to be the, the 
breakthroughs in the next 12, 24, 36 months, let's say? Well, I think um, let's just talk about the microcosm, at least in my own laboratory. Uh, our robot, uh, which is a machine from ChemSpeed that, again, was built uh, with the area of automation in mind. Uh, it's a machine that can make, you know, say, 48 reactions at a time. Um, it's an excellent toy to actually um, control with artificial intelligence and show that what we're saying is actually happening, right? So I think our lab and others uh, are trying to show that uh, inverse design is really feasible in the, in the space of materials. Uh, we have already some success stories that we will be publishing soon on um, film, film materials with our collaborators in the University of British Columbia, even um, uh, Jason Hine and Cortis Berlinget, fantastic, uh, great scientists. So um, I think in the 24 months period, uh, we all have to show that this is um, feasible. There is a lot of hype uh, in terms of AI for pharma. Many people are really um, upset, I mean, the traditional pharma people with the people that are doing AI in it, including myself. Uh, so in that space as well, uh, there are many uh, people that I know, efforts that I actually know I cannot disclose right now, of people actually trying to show that you can actually find good leads for drug development uh, using AI. Um, uh, having said that, of course, drug development is a very different problem as material scientists, uh, material science, because the assays uh, can be extremely complicated, and also uh, the, the time to development and the cost to development is, is is way higher than materials. And now you can see why I move into the material space because a little bit low, lower hanging fruit. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, again, I think it's it's the lower hanging fruit and variables. The number of variables change, so compute allow you know compute power today allows i think uh more progress uh depending on the science that you pick to aim this uh technology at first um so this is this is non-trivial uh computer science work like where do you find the people to either work uh, you know, code or work on this, not just for what you're doing in your own labs, but you're you're thinking about starting companies. So where where do you where do you identify these uh, people that have these this knowledge? Well, yes, I mean the the talent pool and development is one of the things that uh, is most important. I mean, one of the things that I like to do is form them. <laughs> you know, that's a great thing of being a professor that actually. And many of these people uh, be begin as, as junior or graduate students in my lab, and they slowly, by being part of what some people call an anarchist collective, my research group, uh, build up to becoming great scientists, right? I mean, Jennifer Way is an example of a student that came to my group at Harvard when I was there from Yale. She just graduated uh, you know, a few months ago, and, and she's now uh, a scientist at Google, right, uh, doing AI for smell. Okay, so she's actually trying to predict new fragrance uh, fragrances uh, at Google, right? So this is an example of uh, uh, talent development. So one of the things I like to do is, of course, develop talent. That's why I'm a professor. Um, okay. Second thing, second thing is, of course, the postdocs. I try to identify raw talent. Like these people sometimes come with no knowledge of AI, but uh, I just want to, I just someone somehow say, "Oh, this person is brilliant," and then go for that person, right? So rather than the person that took the online courses or whatever in AI. And finally, of course, now that I moved to Toronto, uh, actually today I need to do admissions, um, uh, something I haven't finished doing. Um, I had the wonder of 
being at one of the meccas of AI and having now, uh, as, as a professor of computer science, access to people that were trained as computer scientists, have a lot of experience in, in machine learning, and I want to hopefully start joining my lab. So this is the first time I'm going to have really properly trained people as well uh, in the field uh, coming in. So I'm pretty excited about that. So I guess it's a mixture of people. And in terms of companies, as you say, uh, a company requires always uh, a few ingredients. You have to have a seasoned CEO, in my opinion, uh, to reduce risk. So the CEOs of my companies are always people that have started other companies. Uh, you, have, you have to have some co-founders that you trust. They usually came from my lab, excellent postdocs and graduate students that were just, you know, off scale. And of course, people from outside that you that that you, you know through your network. So never underestimate your network. So that's how I build my teams, right? It's, it's just a lot of human intuition, but uh, common sense and and training. So let me let me um, ask a more uh, a question that's around. I always think to myself, we're we're really changing the rules of the game on the ground with these technologies. I, I always think of Google and, you know, who is now going to compete against Google when Google has, you know, more information than probably any other company out there or, or is constantly being fed new information. I feel that some of the areas that you're working on, even in, in material sciences, whoever runs the fastest first can almost have a unprecedented advantage. And catching up is, I'm not going to say is almost impossible, but becomes very difficult as as more information is fed into the system. It, it's not a typical competitive environment the way that we historically think about it. What, what do you think about where the field is going and you know, it coming down to a few companies that own all the marbles. Yes, I mean it's true that uh, it's amazing how many of the you know emerging powerful companies in the space of you know deep tech as like as, as it's called now, right? Deep technologies like machine learning or robotics or AI, etc. Um, how 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 some of these companies have been acquired or. Uh, by by big corporations like Microsoft, Google, etc. Right. Um, so I think it's a dynamic where where you have these emerging startups that could be potentially become very large companies or acquire and and the big boys. Right. Um, one of the advantages I think of the small teams is that um, uh, we we don't have a a, a huge um, structure behind it behind them and uh, innovation is is generated out of need. Right. I mean, if you know you have a runway. And your your um, your runway is going to end eventually, right? Um, you have to be very focused, right? Whereas if it's more open ended, maybe one of the large com- companies, um, and also you have some other responsibilities, uh, you might be able to um, to not compete as well, paradoxically, right? So so who knows? I think I think there is still space uh, for all the entrepreneurs to 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 make uh, progress. Um, but it is correct that it, it is hard to to compete with with companies that not only have access to better data sources, sometimes they even have uh, um, access to an infinite amount of compute, right? So, which is hard to combine when you are a, a, an entrepreneur or an academic. Um, so, so some, I, saw, I saw recently in Twitter something that explains that very well. Like, if you're an academic, you better go into the fringes and develop new methods and explore, right? 
uh, and you know that rather than competing more established methods against people that have an infinite compute, right? So it's it's a it's a valid point, and and you know it's a new era. Let's see let's see how we do. But I I, I think many people probably have had this type of worries all along uh, because they always have been big corporations, and some of them become small, right? Uh, there's very few companies of the original companies in the top five five hundred list that are still there, right? So there's still room for innovation. Well, it's interesting because I have a I have a slide in one of the talks that I give that shows the, you know, the top companies on the S and P five hundred, you know, not that long ago, uh, which were you know Exxon and uh, you know, um, I think it was IBM and so on and so forth. And now none of them are in the top space anymore. It's all compute based uh, companies that are number one on the list. You know. Old approaches uh, don't have the same value or or uh, growth curve that uh, the new ones do. Yeah, it's possible that Zapata Computing and Kevotics will be there at least soon. Hopefully, right? Uh, <laughs> in the in the world, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the ambition, right? Um, so so stay tuned. <laughs> so it, with this concept of uh, that, I have of of predicting the future or um, you know what I what I will say sometimes is is the uh, scientific method dying um, you know it seems that the, this this ever-growing capability of compute with increased data sets and and uh, constantly being able to feed what you the output is back into your main data set and make it better. You know, do you believe that, that the machines will come up with the best options as we go forward as opposed to the humans? Not in all cases, in all scenarios. No, I mean, I think um, the machines are already coming up with best, better options uh, in some cases, and all of us accept it as a matter of fact. Uh, you know, we, we, we buy plane tickets on the internet without thinking. Uh, sorting them uh, by by uh, travel distance and so on so on cost and so on using computer algorithms and it's a human computer interaction that makes it so easy right same thing when you are running uh, uh, driving in the in the street with a gps right so you're moving around and the gps especially waze is a fantastic application to run in places like Mexico City, where it's a chaotic mess, and you really need to have real-time <laughs> real traffic information to move around, and the optimization that Waze does makes Mexico City driving possible, right? Um, so I believe that um, we're really delegating to these type of systems, and some sense, the only thing I'm trying to do is to create chemical GPS-like systems, right? That will allow us to navigate the chemical space easier. The human is uh, always going to be involved, in my opinion, in most of these things, if not all, right? Uh, in terms of uh, the decisions on our everyday life. I mean, a computer can make me all the suggestions I want, but if I don't want to eat sushi today and I want to eat burrito, I just want to eat a burrito, right? So um, it is that interaction between the, the, the computer system and the human that makes things possible. And I think they're going to be there aiding us in our decisions more and more in an unobtrusive way. Um, so that's I think that's yeah. going to be the future of AI in the next in the near term. Yeah, that's that's what I keep thinking that the system will make some suggestions in the beginning that narrow the space a little bit, 
which then the human can then make the interaction as opposed to historically where the human generates the first set and then goes from there. I just think sometimes the things that we're trying to understand are have too many data points coming into it from a complexity perspective for the human to decide what the best option is. Yeah, so in our case, going back to what I do in my lab now, um, and that's why you see my website and everywhere I'm talking about what I'm doing because, you know, it's a new thing. And that's the good thing about having tenure and being older that you can suddenly say, this is what I'm doing, right? And people start looking at it, right? <laughs> but I have improved many of these things, right? So I have to kind of show that, that these things are real and that we're going to have a big impact uh, still, which is also fun, um, not to rest in my comfort zone. Um, um, so one of the things that, 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 that we believe is the human is very, very important at defining the original search space, as I was telling you before. If you don't define the original search space for your robot, then you are lost, right? I mean, the GPS has to know, right, that you are very, very close to a corner to actually be useful, right? Uber, GPS, or whatever, right? So same thing here. I mean, you have to give a lot of context to the, to the computer to actually search chemical space. So yes, there's going to be a first suggestion that is not obvious, and we already have seen examples of that. The robot will do it. Most of the times, what happens is that suggestion is because the, the machine is trying to figure out what it doesn't know. So it explores the unknown in a very interesting, non-intuitive way. So we have an algorithm called Phoenix, uh, developed by my students, uh, uh, Florian Hasse and Loic Roch, my postdoc. Um, perfect examples of people that didn't do ML when they started, and now they are ML gurus. Um, and what this algorithm does is, yes, try to trade exploration with exploitation. So sometimes, actually, the best suggestions are actually suggestions to try an area that you have not thought about or don't know anything. So they're going to be failed experiments. But the computer is very good at trying to say, what is the best failed experiment to make to know more about the space? Think about humans. They are biased to try to succeed. And therefore, we explore in, in small areas. So the element of su surprise uh, sometimes comes from those seemingly idiotic choices of the computer. Sometimes it's actually smarter to be idiotic. No, agreed. I, I think it's going to be a combination of the two. Um, but you're right. I think the computer will try things that just because it doesn't know and it's not trying to apply for a grant or something else uh, or, or try to be promoted where uh, failure is... Um, can be celebrated in some way so that you find out either what not to do or you may discover something that you never thought could be possible. Yes, and I think um, there's a colleague of mine, you should interview him, he's super fun. His name is Lee Cronin. Uh, we're starting to work together more and more. Lee and I just wrote a recent proposal whose title is called Madness, so hopefully it gets funded, but you can think about the title already that <laughs> it's kind of a fun project. Uh, so uh, it... He, he kept saying in the when we were thinking madness, Alan, what we're doing is boring. This design thing is boring because we know what we want. I want the computer to enter into discovery mode to try to find the unknown. Right? So he's right. I think uh, eventually what I'm telling you is going to be quite trivial. And what is going to be more interesting is when computers come up with completely new things that we were not expecting. You know, computers connected to robots and synthesis systems and so on. So I believe like, the new interface of chemistry is when everything is integrated. There's no more computational chemists, no more experimental chemists. It's all one and only. As you know, everything is converging, right? The physical world and the digital world are converging in this century, right? It's almost unbelievable to go outside to the street without your cell phone, right? Many people, 
people don't will know what to do, right? If you go to a new city without a cell phone. <laughs> oh my god, right? I, I remember I was backpacking with a map, right? And bus tables and you know, uh <laughs> let's go travel guy. Right? What's that? You know, uh, so it's so quickly converted into a digital world. And I think the science world is will digitalize in such a way that that it will look um, much more different this century. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I mean, I, I've, I'm I'm always thinking about how long have we been truly digitizing um, the different areas of of the different sciences, healthcare being the the latest to the party. I mean, we just just don't digitize the way that we should or could. Um, but other areas where we've seen real, you know, data being uh, put into systems where you can do your analysis, uh, you see much, much faster leaps forward because uh, everything is in, a, is in a format that lends itself to these platforms. And the platforms are moving so quickly that uh, I can barely keep up with all the reading uh, that needs to be done. So I'm I'm expecting that there'll be some exponential leaps in the next three to five years in different areas. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure we're going to get to what everybody wants, but you don't need everything. I think you need a few key discoveries, and that can make all the difference. Yes, I mean it's going to be an exciting decade uh, if the world doesn't blow up. Uh... <laughs> by politics or nationalism or climate change or all the dangerous forces that are around us right now. So hopefully science and engineering and technology are a positive force to counterbalance uh, such uh, negative uh, things that are happening right now. Yeah, as long as we explain it to people that they understand it and there's some modification about the way think, people think about uh, how these are going to be applied, where they're going to be used, and, and how it uh, how it affects you know, their lives, uh, I, th I think it, you can have a balance. I think without some level of education, I think it becomes a losing proposition. Sci-fi sci has a way of scaring people. So thank you so much. This was fantastic. Uh, I look forward to, to keeping in touch and uh, keeping the conversation going. Absolutely. Uh, let's stay in touch and I'll, I'll reach out to you when we make a fantastic materials discovery so you can uh, discuss it in your podcast. Um. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. If you enjoyed Moneyball Medicine, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is greatly appreciated. Hope you join us next time. Until then, farewell. <laughs>